Even I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. Isaiah 43, 11. We're going to su- suspend Sunday evening services for a time. Let's take note of that. Next Sunday is, next Sunday is communion service again. Wow, where did that month go? <laughs> oh, no evening service and, of course, no dinner. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. Um, if I'm not mistaken, t- uh, traditionally, uh, this Wednesday would have been our annual business meeting. It's, I think it's last Wednesday of the month. Um, we're a little not prepared for that, so we're going to postpone for two weeks. So two weeks from this Wednesday, we'll plan on um, a business meet- annual business meeting. So if you're responsible for a report, um, because it's not been in, in the bulletin or announced, uh, we're going to push that back so you have time to get ready. Um, does somebody want to remember to make sure that gets in the bulletin for next week or whoever, whoever that person might be, (laughs) let's try to get, get a reminder in the bulletin next week for two weeks from this coming Wednesday. Andrea's number, uh, thank you for your uh, giving, your faithfulness and your giving. Um, again, the envelopes, uh, are here. Um, if you haven't taken one, you're late. I have a new baby boy. He's a big guy. (laughs) A couple announcements that aren't in your um, bulletin. Social committee uh, will have a short meeting, short circled, um, right after service in the front pew. So stay right down here, right after the service, social committee meeting. I've been asked to uh, say something about the parking situation. Uh, People who park kind of in the middle, which would be like directly behind me, kind of straighten that up a little bit. It's getting a little funny out there, and I guess people... I park over here in the snowbank, so it's it's not me. Uh, So if you can kind of straighten it up over there a little bit, um, particularly in the winter, 
Uh, do you notice how small that parking lot gets if they just plow it one time? It's really different. Um, so that um, X and Facts just came in hot off the press. Uh, so make sure you get a copy and read through that. Um, let me see. Winter Blast. What's the date? February 7th through 9th. February 7th through 9th. Coming up fast. Um, I think pretty much everybody's got their arrangements made, but if you have not, you can see Laura for that. So Winter Blast. Um, the If you didn't know... Uh, the church is taking care of half of that tuition. So, um, again, any questions or anything like that, volunteering, see Laura for that. Okay, is that it? Our scripture for meditation this morning is Psalm 32. Let's stand and ask the Lord to 
bless our time together. Ed, can I ask you today? Thanks. Brown hymnal this morning and turn to 193, 193 in the Brown hymnal. Mr. Andrew, do you have a song this morning? Um, 51 in the purple. All right, do we have a reason for this song? Uh, I'm waiting. I'm all ears. Okay. All right. Yeah. I don't have a purple book. Here. I have a purple book. I don't know it. Which is bad. Oh, it's beloved. 
Okay, 51. You're playing it. Yeah. Just you. That's what I was asking. Yep. I knew the answer to that one. Yeah. We're going to do it twice through. chapter, and we'll be reading 1 through 15, page 1126 in the Pew Bible. Please stand. You want to come up? I have to erase it, they couldn't hear me. Oh, well, you can, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. I even bought a uh, a bigger Bible, and uh, it's almost too big. Isaiah 43, one of my favorite chapters in the scriptures, beginning with verse 1. But now, this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. 
I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble, which of their gods foretold this, and proclaim to us the former things. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right, so that others may hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver me out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? Uh, is that it? No, okay. Um, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring, uh, bring down as fugitives all Babylonians. In the ships in which they took pride, I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, he who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and the reinforcements together. And they lay there never to rise again, extinguished, uh, snuffed out like a wick, Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me and the jackals and the owls. Because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I form for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Yet you have not called on me, Jacob. You have not wearied yourself for me, Israel. You have not brought me uh, sheep for burnt offerings nor honored me with your sacrifices. I have not 
burdened you with grain offerings, nor wearied you with demand for incense. You have not brought any fragrant uh, calamus for me, or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices. You have uh, burdened me with your sins, and wearied me with your offenses. I, even I, he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and remember your sins no more. Review the past for me. Let the uh, let us argue the matter together. State the case for your in- innocence. Your first father sinned. Those I sent to you uh, to teach you rebelled against me. So I disgraced the dignitaries of your temple. I considered Jacob to destruction and Israel to scorn. May God richly bless his word today. Thank you. I don't know if you wanted to sit sit or stay standing. Oh, okay. Turn to number 264 in your hymnal, 264 in the brown. Excuse me, 264 in the brown.
I like my new toy. <laughs> Thank you. Our scripture text this morning is uh, Isaiah 43. We're in this kind of mini-series, Unto You a Child is Born. It's kind of Christmas extended, but here we go. We look at the fact that we have a Savior for sin and guilt. We define guilt as having to do with real objective sin. You feel guilty because you are guilty. Uh, psychology teaches us something different, but don't believe the psychologist. It's true that we can uh, have feelings of guilt when we didn't do anything wrong. People make us feel guilty sometimes. Uh, but real guilt, if it's, it's deal, it locked into sin. So a guilt feelings can be subject, subjective rather, and indicate a response to real or imaginary sin. We looked at two scenarios, people who commit real sin, and they don't feel guilty. You all know somebody like that, don't you? They do all kinds of wrong things, and they, they don't feel bad about it at all. And then there are people who feel guilty. I mean, they're just dripping with guilt, but they're innocent. Uh, but may, people make them feel guilty, and so they do feel guilty. God's remedy is Christ is our guilt offering. The scripture actually uses that phrase with regard to Christ, that he's our guilt offering. Wow, I like that. There's five ways in which we handle guilt. Denial, get rid of God and the creator and get rid of all his laws. You won't feel guilt anymore. That's the world's approach. Rationalization. Passing blame for our sin to another or minimizing our sin because of mitigating circumstances. We say, oh, well, I didn't know. Well, I was deceived. I was tricked. So we do things like that to rationalize our guilt away. Performance. Human law makes provision for restitution, so we think God will let us pay off our debt. We learn, however, we are drowning in debt, so there's no means to repay. Remember the parable where the guy just, he had millions that he owed and he could never repay it. His only recourse was for God to forgive the debt. And that was the point, is God does not deal with us in leniency, but in mercy. He pays the debt for us in the person of his son. Now today we want to look at the subject of Christ as a unique savior and therefore one salvation. So as we come, let's pray. We're very thankful, Lord, that the scripture explains to us the truth of salvation. And I pray that we'll be able to dig into it and really understand it. There's so many voices out there telling people how to be saved, if they even believe that that's necessary. 
but the only safe and reliable guide to spiritual truth is found in the Word of God. And the Spirit of God needs to take that Word and apply it to our hearts. Don't let us skirt away from it, but let us hear your Word today. Bless and honor your Savior, Jesus yourself. May you be exalted and lifted up and be praised. And may the Holy Spirit apply the truth to our hearts. Amen. We're looking at the subject today of Christ as a unique Savior. And therefore, there's only one salvation. You notice in the bulletin outline, they're referring to the fact that it is not a partnership. Salvation is not a partnership. The biggest struggle we have in our day in presenting the gospel of grace to people is that people do not believe they need God's grace to be saved. Either they do not believe that they are as bad off a sinner as God declares them to be, or that God is so full of love as to not require perfection in obedience. In heart, they believe themselves to be basically good, certainly um, capable to do good, or to be good enough to win God's favor. And to help fuel this error, we have preachers who present salvation as a partnership. I'm sure you've heard this. Let me say it. This is what I hear on uh, televangelists. God has done all that he can do to save you. Now the rest is up to you. How many have heard that or something very similar? said all the time. And by the rest is up to you, they mean your contribution, your part in the equation. This heresy is as old as the New Testament days themselves. For example, in Acts 15, a dispute arose in the church of Antioch, located in Syria, which was Paul and Barnabas' home church. That was their church. This dispute is stated by Luke, the author of the book of Acts, in these terms, and this is Acts 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea, that would be from Jerusalem, to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, here's what they were teaching, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me read it again. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, both Paul and Barnabas did not take this lying down, but they came into sharp disagreement with these men from Judea. And so the church at Antioch, Antioch was in the northern part of Palestine, They decided to send a delegation to, Acts 15, verse 2, go up to Jerusalem. It's always up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's built on a hill. So even though 
Antioch was up here and Jerusalem was down here. When they traveled south, it's still up to Jerusalem because you've got to go up the hill to get to it. Go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. Acts 15 verse 2. We need, we need to talk to the apostles about this. The apostles were stationed in Jerusalem. So we have in this the summoning of the first church council. Normally, normally a local church handles its own affairs within the confines of the fellowship. That's a Baptist principle. But this is a biggie. This is really big. The question of the Jewish constituents was restated at the council, Acts 18 and verse 5. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Acts 15 Verse 5, verse 6. Now, already, already you can see that there has been an escalation of the issue. At Antioch, it was, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. But at the council meeting, The statement is, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Oh, now we're really getting to it, aren't we? It's not just circumcision anymore. It's Christ plus. The narrow brush, circumcision, has now developed into the broad brush, the entire law of Moses, and brethren, generally that's how things go. The camel's nose, if tolerated in the flap of the tent, will result in the whole beast being inside the tent if you don't smack the little beast in the nose and force him to retreat. Now how widespread was this assertion that salvation was the result of a partnership? Yes, Christ died for sinners. Yes, a person had to believe in Christ as Savior. But along with that faith, there had to be adherence to the law of Moses, so they said. So it became Christ plus your obedience to the law equals salvation. Well... Paul, in writing to the churches of Galatia, now when you think of the churches of Galatia as a province, so if you look at the early chapters of the book of Acts, the churches of Galatia consisted of, these are little house churches, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. So in writing to those churches, and they would write to, Paul would send a letter to one of those churches, and then they would pass it to the next church, and then they would pass it to the next church until all these little churches got the letter. 
that Paul wrote. But in writing to these churches, Paul gives us the background of this dispute. After Paul's apostleship was authenticated by the other apostles in Jerusalem, and before this group arrived from Jerusalem with this complaint, the scripture says that Peter, Galatians 2 verse 12, Paul says, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. What's that mean? Well, you know that Jewish people have a certain diet, and the Gentiles have a diet. The Jews have this very restricted procedure of eating. The Gentiles eat pretty much anything they want to eat, anything they like to eat. So when this unauthorized delegation of Jews came from Jerusalem preaching this message that Gentiles must be circumcised to be saved, Paul tells us that Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Galatians 2, verse 12 and 13. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, Peter caved and Barnabas caved. So we have a domino effect beginning to corrupt all these churches in the province of Galatia kind of follow the leader but boy if the leader is um, what did Jesus say if he lead if you if the leader draws you to a pit and you fall into the pit have you really made any progress there no you've destroyed yourself so Paul says in Galatians 2 14 when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We, who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners... Know that a man is not justified, that is, he's not saved by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too, we Jews, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because, Peter, By observing the law, no one will be justified or saved. Galatians 2, verses 14 through 16. Wow. This might have been a pretty hot meeting. Well, anyway, Peter backed down as well as he should have. Because he was in the wrong He was sending the wrong message about salvation to the Gentile brethren. He was siding 
with this wrong view that one is justified or saved by faith in Christ plus obedience to the law, and they put the two of them together, and that's how you get saved. Primarily circumcision, but not only that, also the dietary laws, because what do we read? We read that Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. So what's he doing? He's going total Jew. Circumcision, necessary for salvation. Eating certain foods, necessary for salvation. Wow. Now my question is, is this teaching a little and therefore inconsequential issue, or is this a big issue? Is this just two apostles having a difference of opinion that is little more than a minor skirmish? Or is this a draw your sword to die for issue? Well, obviously, the church at Antioch thought this to be a to die for issue because they sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem for a hearing and a resolution on the matter with all the apostles. Wow. We need to get this resolved. We're not settling it up here. Let's go to all the apostles that are stationed in Jerusalem. We may further understand the seriousness of the issue by listening to Paul's opening remarks in his letter to the Galatian churches, saying, listen to his words, I'm astonished, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to, number three, pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he makes this bold statement. Paul's talking, he says, I want you to know that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we did preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Let him go to hell. Wow. And then he says it again. As we have already said, so I say it to you again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. It's some of the strongest language you're going to find in the scripture. Yeah, this is a to-die-for issue. You better believe it. Note note how Paul labels this message of the Judaizers who taught that one cannot be saved unless he observes Jewish law. He calls it a different gospel, a no gospel at all, and number three, a perverted gospel. Wow. Different, no gospel, perverted gospel. 
That's some of the strongest language you're going to find in the New Testament. You see, Paul's fervor is aroused because the integrity of Christ as the unique Savior, securing the only salvation there is, his integrity is in jeopardy. How could this happen in the church? Well, Paul tells us how it happened. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them, not for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. Galatians 2 verse 4 and 5. You know, brethren, there are some things worth standing for and salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone is one of those things you better stand on. In Galatians 5, Paul went on to elaborate on the seriousness of adding human obedience to the work of Christ. He writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul tell you, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Let me state it again. Christ will be of no value to you at all. He goes on, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is required to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified or saved by law, you have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Galatians 5, 1 to 4. Wow. Paul is saying very pointedly, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot have Christ as Savior and then try to save yourself through obedience to the law of Moses, be it the Ten Commandments or any of the rest of the law, the dietary laws and so on or whatever. You know, there is a movement in our country. It's called the New Calvinists. The new Calvinists, they're teaching that one must obey the dietary laws of the Old Testament, of a Jew, to be saved, truly saved. As clearly as I can put it, the salvation of God is not a partnership. It's not a partnership. Faith in Jesus along with personal obedience to the law. Jesus is not sharing the glory with you or with me. If we could have saved ourselves by our obedience to the law, then the cross of Jesus was unnecessary and a waste of God's precious and perfect Son. 
In our day, not many Judaizers are advocating faith in Christ plus circumcision. But, but, there are myriads of preachers advocating atonement for sin by the blood of Jesus if you, in and of yourself, will just repent and believe. So your repentance and faith are taught as your contribution to the gospel message. It is Christ plus your repentance and faith that equals salvation, and that in essence is the same as Christ plus circumcision. Now the gospel does call us to repentance and faith, no doubt about it. But it teaches that these necessary attributes to apprehend Jesus are the gifts of God himself, not of ourselves, lest we boast, Ephesians 2, verse 8. It's not talking about human faith or human changing of one's mind. We're talking about something that's supernatural. I've heard the boast, and I'm sure you have too, Oh, yes, Jesus died, but I had to believe. I had to believe. Brethren, if you truly believe that you are in partnership with Jesus by your repentance and faith in his work, then you have been severed from Christ and fallen from grace, just as surely as if you were counting on ceremonial circumcision to fit you for glory. That is how serious this is. You're not a partner in your salvation. What you are, what I am, we are recipients. We are beneficiaries. And that's where we boast. Not about all our right decisions, but about the Savior who in love drew us to himself. We sing in our hymn on the the communion Sunday, The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. He's all the glory. And that means, secondly, no penance on your part or mine. This is a flip side to no partnership. Because penance has the idea of paying for your own sin primarily to keep you saved or to assure your salvation by making up for sinful failures. It's not found in the Bible, but it comes right out of the Roman Catholic playbook. Let me read it for you from the Roman Catholic Catechism. Penance is a sacrament in which the sins committed after baptism, are forgiven. Penance remits or releases from guilt of penalty. Sins, the eternal punishment, and at least some of the temporal punishment due to sin. The sacrament of penance remits sin and restores the friendship of God to the soul by means of the absolution of the priest. Absolution means to forgive or pardon and comes from the words, I absolve you, etc. Spoken by the priest. 
That's right out of their catechism. Now the penance assigned by the priest might be prayers or fasting or giving of alms to the poor or reciting the rosary or paying for indulgences or doing works of mercy, etc., etc. But you are paying in that sense, for your salvation. Dr. C.D. Cole, former pastor of Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto, explains. He says, and I quote, The basic fatal error of Romanism is the denial of the sufficiency of Christ as Savior. It denies the efficacy of his sacrifice on the cross. Or in layman's terms, the cross wasn't good enough. The cross wasn't complete enough. What he did on Calvary must be repeated. That's why we have the Mass every, in every Sunday on, in a Catholic church. They go through the re-sacrifice of Christ. And it must be supplemented through works of penance. And this makes, he's still saying, this makes priestcraft and sacraments necessary. Romanism is a complicated system of salvation by works. It has salvation to sell. But not on Isaiah's terms, who says, without money, without price, Isaiah 55, verse 1. No, it offers salvation on the installment plan and then sees to it that the poor sinner is always behind in his payments so that when he dies, there's a large balance unpaid and he must continue the payments by suffering in purgatory or until the debt is paid by prayers and alms and suffering from his living relatives or friends. The whole system and plan calls for merit and money from the cradle to the grave and even beyond the grave. Surely the wisdom that drew this plan of salvation is not from above. It's not from God. But is earthly and sensual. End quote. This works on the conscience of those who feel guilty about their sin and who do not feel forgiven think about it we've learned previously in this series that forgiveness is based on truth not feelings truth first feelings second and to this I would add the feelings do not trump the truth The truth is what it is whether you feel it to be so or not. Well, what's the truth about forgiveness? What's the truth about the work of Christ on the cross? Over against penance, the Bible declares, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways. 
and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. This, brethren, is repentance. It's not penance. See the distinction? It's repentance, not penance. It is forsaking sin, not paying God off. The result is that God will freely pardon. Freely pardon. No cost to you. I think verse 1 is appropriate as well. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy, eat. Come buy wine and milk without money. Without cost. How, how more can God say it's free? It's free to you. Now it costs God to be sure. But it's free to you. How thorough is God's pardon for sin. When we do come to him through Christ. The Bible says no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah 31 verse 34. And Hebrews 8.13 lists this as a provision of the new covenant In Christ's blood. Micah the prophet asked this question. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. And hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Micah 7 verse 18 and 19. And Hebrews 10 verse 11 and following says. Day after day every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's talking about the animal sacrifices. But when this priest, when Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever. Look at that phrase. Isn't that wonderful? Perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time. Says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. 
And where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 10, verse 11 and following. What is this? It's no penance, no payments, no personal suffering necessary. It's all been paid for by Christ. I hate to say it, but sometimes we are better Roman Catholics than we are Christians. We are. We live in ways that amount to a practical refutation of the sufficiency of Christ's atonement and sacrifice and mercy and his forgiveness. Brethren, you do not pay anything for your sins. You do do not pay anything for your sins. We sing a song, I love it. We usually sing it at our communion service. The words go like this, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Yeah, sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. The great sin here is when we have the audacity to believe that our puny contributions of self-abasement or self-denial and humiliation add something to the perfection of Jesus' sacrifice. Ascetics beat their bodies or hurt their bodies believing that such temporal infliction of pain somehow atones for sin. Well, it doesn't. It just adds to the sin. It says, Jesus, I do not believe that your sacrifice paid for all my sin. I think there's a balance on the account that I have to clear myself. And if you think that, you're thinking wrong. And if you think that, you have misunderstood the gospel and you do not know salvation by grace. We come very close to the Galatian error at times of a perverted gospel when we begin to think that the sins committed after conversion, the Roman Catholic thought says after baptism, must be atoned for through good works. Abstinence is often the Protestant version of penance. We list as vices, the mores of our Protestant fundamentalism. What's that? Well, no alcoholic beverages, no movies, no dancing, no playing cards, no gambling. And we believe that by doing these things, we somehow are holy, somehow more saved, even if we leaned on Jesus alone. That's dangerously close to being severed from Christ and falling from grace. However necessary it is 
that we live holy lives, and it is. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord in peace, the scripture teaches. Let's not trust in personal abstinence as our badge of holiness, but rather on Jesus' blood and righteousness. Whatever things we do that are holy, it's always partial. (laughs) There's always Mars in it of some sort. We are forgiven because we're cleansed by the blood of Christ. How does this work? Well, it works this way. God does not count our sins against us. He's not saying that we don't have sin. He's just saying, I won't count it against you. For example, David in his first psalm that he wrote about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba said, let me read it for you. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And in whose spirit is no deceit. Psalm 32, 1 and Verses 1 and 2. Wow. He says this with regard to his sin. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. What does that mean? Whose sins are covered. What does that mean? Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. That's what it means. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans 4 verse 8 and he indicates that this is, a, this is how God deals with our sin. Because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, those who trust their case to Jesus have their sins paid for in full. Their sin does not count against them. Now it's legal jargon to be sure, but it has spiritual overtones. God have an indictment that you're guilty. But if there's no indictment, then you can't be charged with the guilt or the crime. Think of Dickens' novel. We think about that at Christmas time. Think of the ledger book maintained by Marley, his secretary, who worked for Scrooge. He, under Scrooge's direction, kept the accounts right down to the very last penny of every poor person who ever had the misfortune of having to deal with Ebenezer. (laughs) No mercy, no extension of payments due, no, no, no forgiveness of the debt. Uh Uh-uh. They owed it. The ledger showed the debt on the account. There was no recourse but to pay or end up in debtor's prison. That's the rule of law, by the way. The law of God will not show you mercy. It will not pay your debt. It can only demand justice. And there's plenty of debt on the ledger book under your name and under mine. Pay up. Pay up, pay up. I can't, I can't. Well then, 
into the lake of fire. You can take an eternity to pay. But along comes God, and because of the intercession and substitution of his son Jesus, who steps in and pays in full the debt of his believing people, those sins are not counted against you. If you stop trying to eradicate the debt yourself and cast your total burden on Christ, it's all or nothing. But observe. God does not simply forgive the debt. No. <laughs> he pays the debt. That's different. The sins on your ledger are moved to Christ's ledger. The books have to be balanced under God's justice. Someone has to pay. And if it isn't you, then who? Let me read it for you. Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. I like the hymn by Charles Wesley, written in 1798, called, And Can It Be? And one of the lines goes, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Hmm. Died he for me? Who caused his pain? For me to him to death pursued? Oh, amazing love. How can it be? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No counting our sin against us. That's number one. Number two, not only that, not counting our sin against us, but secondly, accrediting Jesus' righteousness to us. Ooh. That's pure grace from God. I remember Brother Riesinger calling this the great exchange. He used to have a sermon called the great exchange. He's now with the Lord. But it would go something like this. The point that he made was, God makes the great exchange. He gives Jesus all of your sin and condemnation. And he gives you all of the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Wow, think about that. And why would he do that? Oh, pure grace? Just a gift? Well, didn't you earn it? No. What you earned was hell. What you got was grace. That's why it's called grace and mercy. You've all heard the expression, we have to balance the books. Or, there's a discrepancy in the books. 
the columns don't bounce. In the most simple of terms, books have two major columns, income and expenses. Starla does a good job for our church books, keeping them for us. Income, expenses. If we think about this form of spiritual from a spiritual perspective, expenses comprise the debt our sin has accumulated, what we owe. Income comprises the resources we have to pay off the debt. Well, spiritually speaking, the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sin. The debt has killed us, so we are bankrupt before God. There is no income. There's no money in the bank, so to speak, to pay off the debt. The puny two cents we throw into the pot in an attempt to pay are laughable. More they are an insult to the holy demands of a perfect and just God. We're locked away in debtor's prison with no hope of ever getting out. And then along comes Jesus, seeking the loss, seeking the sinner whose debt of sin holds him fast with no hope of release. And he says to God the jailer, what if I take so-and-so's sin and in exchange I give him my perfect credit rating? You can credit his or her sin to me and my righteousness to him. This is not a dream, folks. This is the good news of the gospel. Wow. What does the scripture say? I'm reading for you now. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God will credit righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Romans 4, verses 3 and following. Wow. We sing in one of our hymns, Now wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. I think that comes from Psalm 51, Psalm of David. 
We know there are two Psalms in the scriptures, in the Psalms, that were written by David concerning his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 32, which I read earlier, and now Psalm 51. Here's what he says in Psalm 51. Wash all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me from, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalm 51, verse 2 and 4. No one can improve upon this. Penance cannot improve upon this. Self-abasement, self-torture, self-denial cannot improve upon this. It's all of Christ or not at all. Do you know why the Old Testament animal sacrifice is numbered into the thousands year after year? Thousands. They said at certain times of the year, the sacrifices from Jerusalem were so copious that the brook, the Kidron brook, the stream, ran blood from Jerusalem down the hillside. Thousands of years Year after year, think about it. Yet the scripture says, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. The Old Testament law was, show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. Sounds pretty brutal, doesn't it? Well, the principle was this. Equality of worth. So the sacrifice of a bull for a person or a lamb for a person is not an atonement equivalent of life for life. Think of a man found guilty of murder and he's sentenced to death and so the defense attorney comes before the judge with the defendant's dog and he says, here, put the dog to death to comply with the sentence. Why, he would be laughed out of court, right? How absurd. A dog for a person. Do you know that in, in a sense, all those animal sacrifices, by their very inferiority, were not suitable equivalents to make atonement for sins. The lambs pointed to the lamb 
Jesus Christ, so singularly perfect, so inseparably linked to mankind by his own humanity, so sinless, spotless, that his one-time singular offering of himself satisfied God's anger once and for all. Well, we read in the scripture, unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. No, he sacrificed for their sins. Once for all, he offered himself. Hebrews 7, verse 27. Or again in Hebrews 9. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. It's eternal. Hebrews 9, verse 12. And in verse 26 says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, verse 26. Now, you, you can't add to that with penance or partnership. The atoning sacrifices have ended. Christ is exalted. He's seated next to God. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. He'll appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Are you one of those waiting for him? Because you've trusted in his eternal work, his shed blood. Dying in your place for you so that you can go free. Father, we thank you for your word. How precious. What is more precious to us is the living word, Jesus. His very life he voluntarily gave to us. That it might be taken from him. So that he might buy for us a place in glory and redeem us from hell's torments by paying the debt for us. And his blood, his life was so perfect that he didn't have to keep re-sacrificing himself. He did it once. And the efficacy of his blood covers all of believers in all ages, in all times, now and forever. So that all who trust in Christ, all who rely upon him, will be cleansed now and forever, forever and ever and ever and ever. Never to have that sin brought up against us, never to be used to condemn us. When we look on the ledger, what does it say? It says in blood red letters, paid in full. Paid in full. Thank you, Jesus. May we rejoice in that today. Amen. Our closing hymn today.
It's from the red hymnal number 470, 470 in Trinity. We'll stand as we sing. comfort to know that salvation is solely the work of Christ it isn't if you do this then I'll do that and together we'll get you somewhere that's nice no Christ comes in and says you can't do a thing but you can be the recipient of what I do 
And what he's done is perfect. Are you really thinking you can add to that? If you know the gospel, you know that that's not true. If you add something to something that's already perfect, you spoil it. Right? I mean, if it's perfect and you add something to it, you're making it unperfect. So what Christ has done is perfect. Praise God. We thank you, blessed Savior, for your work. All right, we are dismissed. Lord bless you.